0: Kids, if you want to come on up? Have you guys lived in Alaska your whole life? You have? You've been here forever. Some some of you guys have lived here most of your life. Some of you have lived here just a few years. I've lived here for 20 years. 20 years. You've been here, what, two years? About two years? I've been here in eight years. Just one year. You've been here eight years. I was, I wow. I went on an airplane so I can get to my grandma's house. Oh, cool. My grandpa's house, but my grandpa died. Oh. And my grandma is not even dead because she's not even... That's pretty cool. Audrey, you had your hand up? You said you, you had your hand up? Oh, okay. Well, one of the things that I have learned living here for 20 years is that this is Alaska. And that means in the winter time, when the sun goes down, it gets dark. I already knew that. You already knew that because you've lived here your whole time, right? Well, last Wednesday night... We had gathered downstairs in the basement of the church to have Bible study and there was about 10 or 11 of us downstairs around the table and we were just getting ready to start. We had opened up our Bibles and the power went out and it was black, dark downstairs. There was no light at all. Hold on. Let me let me talk. So we had people started grabbing their phones And there's a little flashlight on the back of their phone and they were lighting that up. So there was little tiny bits of light. And Renee, my wife, said, oh, I'm going to go over to the house because we have a light over there. So she went over to the house to get this light. And this is a really cool light that we have. But the problem was when she went over to the house, she went outside And there were no lights at all outside. But she didn't have her phone with her because she had left it at the house. So literally, she had to walk from the church to the house in total black. Then she had to go down into her garage in total black and try and feel for this because she didn't have her phone with her to show her. She didn't have a flashlight. She didn't have nothing. Finally, she found this light and she brought it over and we plugged it in so that we could then have some light. And so we plugged it in. But there's no power. So it doesn't make any difference whether it was plugged in or not. There was no power. So how in the world was this thing going to help us? I don't want to shine it in your face. But do you see how bright that is? and there's no power it's not connected to anything it's just bright and we could see clearly in the room downstairs until the power came back on with no connection to electricity how is that possible do you know how it's, it's, it's like it's like a lamp. it's like what it's like a lamp yeah There's a battery right in here. There's a battery, but the battery cannot hold the light. I mean, can't keep electricity in it at all times. So we have to keep this thing plugged in all the time so that when we need it, then there's no power. We can turn it on. Sorry, Elsie, I keep hitting you with the light. (laughs) And that way we have light. But you know what's so cool? What this made me think about? The Bible said, Jesus said to his friends, You, my friends, are the light of the world. There are people out in the world who literally are spiritual, are living in a spiritual darkness, and you are the light to them. You're going to show them the way to God. But you know how they do it? They carry God's spirit with them. Just like this battery carries electricity, whether it's connected or not. They have the spirit of God with them, so no matter where they go, They will always be able to shine a light to their community. And the Bible says, let me read it to you. The Bible says. Page changed on me. Here it is. You are the light of the world. Do not put your light underneath a basket, but put it up on a stand so that it will give light to all the people. Let your light shine before everybody so that they can see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. You have God with you. The Holy Spirit of God is with you always. So you don't have to be connected to the church all the time. You don't always have to come to the church and get connected because God is with you all the time. But you know what happens sometimes? Just like this light. If I leave this on for two hours... It eventually the the battery will run out of electricity and the light will go off and it doesn't matter what I do I can't bring more light until I connect it back to the electricity and let the battery charge back up again. And so what God wants you to understand through all of this is the same with us. Yes, we have the presence of God with us, but we have to connect with God pretty regularly. So that what that means is we need to read the Bible. We need to pray. We need to go to church. We need to go to our Sunday school class so that we can learn how to be better Christians to serve and honor God and bring light to our community. And then once we've been at church and connected with God or read the Bible and prayed, then we can just carry the light with us and show the people God no matter where we go. Isn't that cool? I'm going to turn it off so that my battery doesn't go bad. And then Miss Renee gets upset with me the next time she has to get this light. All right. Well, I'm going to pray with you guys. And then you can go to your class. Jesus, bless these kids. Help them to learn what it means to carry you to the world. Help them to understand that you are present with them at all times, but that they need to be intentional about connecting with you so that they can let their light shine to the world and the world would glorify you who are in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go to your class now, okay? See you guys later. Are you going to go see mom? From 1987 until 1991, my wife, myself, and our three daughters lived in in Biloxi, Mississippi. I was in the Air Force. I was stationed at Keesler Air Force Base. And during that time, we actually attended the Gulfport Church of the Nazarene. Gulfport and Buxley were side by side. And so we went to the Gulfport Church of the Nazarene. Our pastor's name, couldn't tell you what it was now. It's been almost 40 years. Um, nope, can't tell you. I can go back farther and tell you his name. But anyway, um, I can tell you his wife's name. She was Miss Perlene. She was Miss Perlene from Pascagoula, Mississippi. Do not cross that woman because she will rip you your face off and she will tell you exactly what you needed to do and what you should have done to make sure she didn't get upset with you. Her story was that in their early days of marriage, she spent the afternoon baking her husband a pie and she had it in the windowsill cooling when he arrived home for dinner. He came in the kitchen. He said, what is that steak? And she said, what? He said, what is that steak? Now he was playing. She didn't take it kindly. (laughs) She said, I have been making you a pie all afternoon. He said, well, it don't smell too good. And he was just playing. She walked over to that window. She picked up that pie. She opened the screen door to the backyard. She threw the pie in the yard. And she said, I have been married to this man for 50 years and I've never once made him another pie. Don't mess with Miss Berline. Now, she was a godly woman. It's okay. But her husband... Amazing man of God. Amazing, amazing man of God. And one Wednesday night at the church service, we always did Bible studies, a series of studies, various, you know, various lessons that he would do out of the Bible. And this one Wednesday night we get there and it's August 1st, 1990. I will remember that date forever. August 1st, 1990, we get to church. We sing the two or three songs, we have some testimony, we pray. And then, and the kids are doing their caravan classes or whatever that they're doing. And then he gets up to lead the Bible study. And he's really anxious and he's nervous. And this is out of character for him. And he stood there at the pulpit and he said, I'm about to do something that I am very uncomfortable doing, but I just know that I know that this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to have to do it, but I just I feel really uncomfortable doing it because I, I'm just going to do it. And he began to tell us all about how God had revealed to him through his prayer time and through his reading of the scriptures and then his observation of the news that there was a man who was coming onto the world stage who was in the Middle East, who was gonna play a significant role in the world stage and that he was a a man who was bringing pain and wreaking havoc. And he didn't know why God wanted him to preach that night and tell us about this man, but we needed to be watching out and praying for the world because of what Saddam Hussein was gonna be doing in the future. And August 2nd, 1990 at two o'clock in the morning, In the Middle East, Saddam Hussein ordered the invasion of Kuwait and started that almost world war over the the nation of Kuwait. And my pastor on Sunday morning, we were going, okay, when are you going to start out the prophecy newsletter for us so that we can know what the next step is going to be happening in this end of world cataclysm? Because we know that you've got the, the ear of God. And he was like, this is a one off. That was a one-off. I don't have the word of God to be able to quote, give you a newsletter every week. I have no idea. He said, that's not my area. I don't study end times. I tell you that whole story to tell you I don't study end times. I don't know end times. I never pay attention to end times. People say, are you pre-millennialist? Nope. Are you postmillennialist?" Nope. What are you? I'm pan What? It's going to pan out in the end. I don't care how it works out. <laughs> I have never worried about end time theology. I believe that there is going to be an end. I believe that Christ is going to come. I believe. I mean, I can show you in the scriptures where it says at the, at the, at the end that the shout the Lord is going to call and there's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. We're all going to be. I can show you all of that. And we'll do some of that study on Wednesday night. But I have to preach to you out of chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. And it's all about End times. And I have really struggled all week. I really have. And I've been like, God, I don't want to do this one. Can I just skip? Elsie hadn't preached yet. Can she just take this one? Didn't work. None of it. So, in obedience to the Holy Spirit of God, I am preaching to you this morning out of of Matthew chapter 24. Um, and we'll see where God takes us. I know. I told I told somebody earlier this service before at the beginning of the service that I knew where I was starting with my sermon, and I know what the ending of my sermon is, but I haven't a clue what the middle part is. I've been praying about it and praying about it and praying about it. And the Lord literally has been downloading it as we're as the service has been going on. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So Matthew chapter twenty four. If you'll pull out your Bibles and follow along with me, I'm reading out of the the English Standard Version. Um, Stick your finger in Mark chapter 13 and your finger in Luke chapter 21, because we're for just a couple of verses going to refer to those as well. OK, so Ma- Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. We're just going to look for just a second at the first two verses of Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was going away now. To, to reorient ourselves, this is Holy Week. On Sunday was Palm Sunday. The people waving palms and throwing their cloaks down. Jesus riding a donkey into the town. He goes into the temple. On Monday morning, he goes into the temple. He clears the temple. He has confrontation with the people. Then he goes back out to Bethany. And, and on, on, on was it Monday, Tuesday morning? Monday morning, Monday morning, he cursed the fig tree. On Tuesday morning, they see the fig tree is is withered. And now it's Tuesday morning. He's in the temple area arguing with the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the scribes. And now it's done. It's the afternoon. And he and his disciples are leaving the Temple Mount area, heading out towards the place that they're going to camp each night for the rest of the week to the Mount of Olives. For those of you who are not familiar with the geography of uh, the of Jerusalem, it, I'll do it from your perspective, not mine. If this is Jerusalem and here's the Temple Mount, the Temple faces east. Here's the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives actually sits higher than the Temple Mount. So the Temple Mount of Olives can look down into the Temple Mount area. So Jesus takes his friends out of the Temple Mount area. And you need to do some study. It's really cool. But there were lots of different passageways out of the Temple Mount area, downstairs and through tunnels and through archways. And then finally, they walk through the city and then out a gate, down through the valley and come up onto the Mount of Olives. Okay, so this first two verses... They are leaving the temple area. And as they're leaving the temple area, Jesus left the temple, was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, let's go to Mark chapter 13. Because Matthew doesn't give us a very good understanding of what the conversation was. Look at Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And then if you go to Luke chapter 21. And it's verse five. And while some were speaking on the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings and then blah, blah, blah. Okay, so. We're going to go back now to Matthew chapter 24 and we'll stay in Matthew 24 for the rest of the time. But Mark and Luke give a little bit more understanding of what was going on in this conversation. The disciples were just taken aback by the awesomeness and the beauty and the gloriousness of the temple. Now, why was that a big deal to them? Let me explain to you a little bit about what's going on here again, because we don't have this. Unless you've physically been there, you don't have any clue how big and what a what a what a huge area it was. Um, If you remember, Solomon in the Old Testament was the one that made the very first temple because David was prohibited from doing the temple. So David got all the materials together, but Solomon was the one that made the temple, and it was glorious. Gold! Everything was covered in gold! It was beautiful! It was glorious! And then, as time went on, the people of Israel were not faithful to God, and the end result was the Babylonian king came and destroyed everything, and literally carried off all the gold and silver and bronze, and burned the temple. So then you get to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they are living in exile, but then God calls them to go back and to rebuild the temple and then rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so if you go to that story, which we're not going to go to this morning, this is the second temple. This is the one that Ezra oversaw the building of. And it says when the building was complete and ready to be uh, dedicated or blessed or, you know, set apart, sanctified. The elders, the people who had been alive at the time before the Babylonian exile, they remembered what Solomon's temple had been. And they were now looking at this new temple being built by Ezra and the people. And they cried and wept. Why? Because it was such a second class temple compared to what Solomon had created. And crafted. And they were weeping and mourning. And they were, they were yelled at. They were literally yelled at. Don't mourn. Don't not weep. This is a day of rejoicing and celebration. Now, fast forward hundreds of years, and we are now in the time of Christ. And King Herod the Great, who is, wants to be known as this fabulous, glorious guy, and he's really a weird, a crazy psychopath, he decides to rebuild the second temple. He doesn't build a third temple. He just rebuilds or remodels, if you will, the temple that had been in place from the time of Ezra, the second temple. And what he did was he literally had these incredible stones that were brought from a quarry nearby. And there were three different types of stones. I was reading a bunch of it this week. There was hard stones and soft stones and medium weight stones and things that they could use for various things. And these stones would hold beautiful carvings and these stones were great structural pieces. And the end result was they did not use any mortar. What they did was they cut these stones that in some cases weighed tons of, Transported them from the quarry to the building, I mean to the building site and they literally, (coughs) excuse me, followed the contour of the bedrock to build a solid line and then built on and built on and built on and built up to a certain level all the way across then filled it all in with debt, with clean fill and then built the temple on top of the temple mount. So what we see today if you look at pictures or see videos or go to the holy land yourself you can go to what's called the western wall that's actually the wall that's the only remaining part of the temple mount that was that was there when that's what herod put in this he basically built it up so that the temple would be up here and if you look at it it says they quarry they 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 they, they Milled? It's not milled. But how do you, what's a mason do? You know, they cut the stone. They cut the stone with such precision, you could put a knife blade between the stones. There was no mortar. They just fit so tightly and so perfectly. And they made this incredible thing. And it was glorious. It was known as a wonder of the world. Not officially, but it was bigger and more glorious than one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. So when Jesus' disciples come to Jerusalem with Jesus and they're on the Temple Mount and Jesus is arguing back and forth with the Sadducees and the Pharisees on Monday and on Tuesday, the disciples are going, look at that. Look at that. That's gorgeous. That's beautiful. Gold. Look at that beautiful. Jesus, do you see this? This is amazing. And what's Jesus' response verse 2? You see these things? Truly, I'm telling you, not one of them will be left. Not one will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, fast forward 40 years. 40 years after this event. The Romans, the the Jewish people uprise against the Roman oppression and they revolt. And the end result is they are pushed down and destroyed. The Roman people destroy Jerusalem and they burn the temple. Well, Herod's temple was covered in gold. So what happened was the gold from the fire melted and went into all the cracks between those rocks. Well, how do you get gold out that's in the middle of those rocks? You get pry bars and crowbars and you start moving the rocks to get to the gold. So not a single stone of the temple was left in its place because of the greed of mankind. They wanted the gold. And Jesus foretold it 40 years before it happened. Now... Let's get on to the trip to Mount of Olives and the conversation that takes place. Verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, "Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age?" Three things that the disciples ask him. When will the temple be overthrown and destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. Now turn back to Matthew, Mark chapter 13. Verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, (coughs) excuse me, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. So now we know it's not all 12 disciples, it's just the four. Tell us, when will these things be? what you just told us about the temple being thrown over. And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? That's not what Matthew wrote. What did Matthew write? Matthew said, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? But Mark said that the conversation was... um, When will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Mm -hmm. And what's the correct answer? I haven't a clue because I wasn't on the Mount of Olives at the time this conversation was taking place. And neither was Matthew apparently because he wasn't named in the group. And neither was Mark. John Mark was actually um, the amen, the the scribe who worked with Peter. And Peter uh, was the one who preached the gospel and Mark wrote it down, and it got named the Gospel of Mark. But it was actually all Peter's stories. So which of the two do you think I would trust more in this scenario? I think I would have a greater, put a greater weight on Mark's Gospel, because Mark was the guy writing down everything Peter was saying in his sermons and in his teachings, and it says that Peter was one of the four in this private conversation with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. I'm, I can't tell you that definitively. I'm just telling you what I'm looking at. So in my mind, I think what I'm hearing is happening in this conversation is, you just told us that the temple's gonna be overthrown. When is this gonna happen and how are we gonna know that it's gonna be time? So let's not focus for today on any of Jesus' second coming or any of that. Let's look at this as if it was a teaching moment that Jesus was doing with his disciples about the prophecy he just told them about the destruction of the temple. Now, I there are scholars who will tell you that this is the right way and there are scholars who tell you that this is the right way and there's no definitive answer, so I can't give you a definitive answer and so I've had to pick one. And so we're going to go with that This is a this is a discussion of the temple destruction that's been foretold by Jesus that we know took place 40 years later. So let's go back to Matt, to Mark chapter 24 now. I'm sorry, Matthew 24. Okay. And so Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus said, verse four, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Yet for nations are going to rise against nation kingdom against kingdom there will be famines and earthquakes in various places all of these are but the beginnings of the birth pains then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated for all nations by all nations for my name's sake And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then he goes to talk about the abomination of desolation, which we are not talking about today. That will be Wednesday because it's way too much to fit into a 30 minute dissertation. And so, if indeed this conversation is about telling the disciples what, the te- about the temple, and the destruction of the temple, and how are they going to know when it's going to happen, he kept, he was saying, don't let anybody tell you astray, you're going to hear that there's new Christ, you're going to hear that I've come back, don't listen to any of that garbage. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars and famine and, and, and earthquakes, and it's the beginning, but it is not the time. There's going to come a very definitive and, and easy time for you to know and what I want you to do, well, let's, let's do that. We're not going to study what this is. But if you turn to verses 15 through 28, you see Jesus talking to them about this abomination of desolation. And if you look at verse 16, he says, when this abomination of desolation happens, let those who are in Judea flee. That's when it's going to happen. Now, why is it important on the last two days that Jesus has with his disciples before his crucifixion for him to do this extended teaching about a destruction of the temple that's going to happen in 40 years? Why is it important? Tell you a couple things. Number one, Jesus, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, all of the people trying to, to trip him up and make him look bad in the public eye. And I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, at that moment, declared enough, enough, enough. It's now open to the rest of the world. I came so that the lost children of Israel could hear the gospel. I came so that you would know that God desires relationship with you. have rejected and rejected and rejected. And I'm wiping my hands off. And it's now open to the world. That was number one. Number two, this destruction of the temple is a physical evidence to the world that God's blessing is no longer there. That is not the center of God anymore. It is now with the Christians. But why, why, why did the disciples need to know a timeline and need to know what to watch for and need to know when you see this happen, flee? Because tens of thousands of Jews were killed during that time when Roman was destroying Jerusalem and tearing up the temple. And Jesus literally said, when this happens, when you see this happen, get out of Dodge now. If you go and read further on, he said, if you're on the roof of your house, don't even go inside to grab your coat. Just get down the outside steps and run. He said, if you... Excuse me, if you're out in the field, run. Do not stop. Why? He was leaving the entire salvation of all of humanity in the hands of these twelve. Or probably more than twelve, because there were the women who weren't counted in the apostles, etc. But this group of people. And remember on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, God increased the church from 150 to 3,150, okay? But there was just 150 people in, in Jesus' influential sphere at that point of time. And so if they did not get out of Dodge and were killed, it would be an opportunity for the enemy to have just totally squashed the message of the gospel, the light of the gospel. Because you saw what I said to the kids. You are the light of the world. The world around you is living in spiritual darkness and you need to shine the light of the truth, the light of the gospel into their lives so that they can be saved. So that they can see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. That's being sick, that's getting saved. And so this teaching that Jesus was doing that was so important in the last days that he's with his friends is you guys need to be aware something's coming down that could cause chaos and disruption and possibly even stop the mission if you're not faithful to be watching. And then if you go to the very end of this chapter, go to the very end of the chapter, look at verse 36. Jesus says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even me. The father only. Now, I don't even want to go there with the 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 theology of what is the Trinity and who knows what. And how can the Trinity, not all three of them know what's going on. That's nobody's business at this point. You can discuss that at another Bible study some other time. But Jesus himself said, no one but the father knows the day or the hour. But the day is going to come. And it'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. Everyone's just going about their business. And all of a sudden, whoosh, destruction. And you must be ready. Therefore, verse 42, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. If the Lord, if the if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and wouldn't let the house get broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour. You don't. And then he goes into his second coming. So there's a little bit of convolution in in this teaching. But I hear what I what I'm hearing, at least the one that really speaks resonates the most with me is that there was something happening in 40 years that Jesus wasn't going to be there for, and he needed to prepare his followers so that they could be ready. Because if they weren't watchful and ready and aware, there was a potential for the whole mission to come crashing down. But the end result was that didn't happen because of this teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 24. And I'm good. Okay, let's break Father, I ask that you would, uh, <clears throat> anything that's not of you, let it just go out the window and go away. But anything that is of you, God, I pray that it would stick with us and hold firm and that you would use it for your kingdom for future. So that when people have questions about, well, what well, doesn't the Bible contradict itself and this and this and this, we can just simply say, well, this is what I understand. And Father, I pray again that this would be your message, not mine. And I pray, Father God. That in the same way that the disciples had to be ready for what was coming, that you would make us ready for whatever is coming our way. Help us, Father, to ever be plugged in, to ever be attentive, to ever be uh, intentional about connecting with you. So that when the moment comes that somebody asks a question or somebody says, I need to talk to you because I've got a problem or somebody says, I don't understand. We are ready with the truth to be able to give it to them with gentleness and respect, but to be able to give an explanation of the hope that lies within us. So, Father God, prepare our hearts even now. Help us to truly experience a Mount Mount of Olives discourse with you in our own private time as you prepare our hearts for the things that are coming down the way for us. And then help us to ever be watchful and mindful of the things that you are preparing us for. I ask all of this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There you are.